This is Cornerstone University, where we are called to God's work, where we are called to create, collaborate, innovate, dedicate. As a university, we inspire the intellect of learners of all ages. As a body of believers, we reflect Christ in everything we do, in our studies, in our work, in our communities. We remain in all things rooted in the Word of God. At Cornerstone University, our work is not finished because God's work is not finished. This is our mission. This is our story. This is Cornerstone University. Hello. Thanks for coming. I'm Alicia Wyant. I'm the executive director over at WCSG 91.3. It's on the corner of campus. We are a broadcast ministry of Cornerstone University. It is my pleasure to welcome you here tonight on behalf of WCSG, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and more importantly, Cornerstone University. I see a lot of faculty, staff, and a few of our students here, and I'm really excited that you're here to engage in deeper conversations about wisdom but I'd like to really welcome the members of our West Michigan community who are here tonight. We're very honored that you chose to participate in these discussions with us this evening, and we look forward to welcoming you to more events throughout the next year. Before we start, would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Lord, you have told us that if we lack wisdom to ask you and you would generously provide. So tonight, Lord, we're here asking you for wisdom. Give us open hearts and minds to understand how to apply tonight's lessons in our daily lives so that we can reflect you to our world. Thank you for your generosity. We pray these things in your name. Amen. It is often said that wisdom is the most important virtue to discern and live out our duties to God, our neighbor, and our world. Tonight's event, Wisdom's Conversations, is a forum dedicated to the pursuit and application of biblical wisdom in today's most pressing dilemmas. Our discussion this evening will be led by Cornerstone University's president, Dr. Gerson Moreno Riano. He is no stranger to seeking the wisdom of God. He often asks us the question, is it for the Lord? Daily, he seeks wisdom by engaging with the word of God and with prayer. He has a passion for academic excellence and a commitment to Christian higher education. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree uh, in political science and biblical studies from Cedarville University, and then continued his academic career at the University of Cincinnati, obtaining his Master's of Arts and eventually his PhD in political science. He is the author of six books and has contributed to many others. Would you please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Gerson Moreno Riano? Well, welcome, welcome to Wisdom Conversations. Thank you for being here this evening. Uh, it's, it's, I'm so grateful you're here. This is an event that our trustees, we have been praying for, that it'd be a great blessing to each of you and to our community. We all need wisdom, yes. We all lack it, we all need it. Thank you for being here. This event cannot happen without the effort and work of so many. I want to acknowledge Bob Sack and his incredible advancement team. Bob, wherever you may be, would you please stand, Bob? 
There he is. Would you please join me in thanking Bob and his team in marketing? We, we cannot do this without their efforts, so thank you, Bob. Thank you. And we are led at this institution by a wonderful, wonderful group of men and women, the Board of Trustees of Cornerstone University, men and women who love the Lord, love Cornerstone, love students, have a passion for ensuring that the mission of this institution is spread throughout the world our Board of Trustees. Board members, would you please stand so we can honor you and thank you for your great leadership of our institution. Would you please join me in thanking our board, our CARES, our chair, many others. Thank you for being here. Many, many months ago, during a number of, of conversations I was having in the community with pastors and local school leaders and others, it came to my mind one day that, Lord, we're all struggling to figure out what to do in lots of different things. We have a country deeply, deeply divided where some basic ideas that we hold dear are contested. And we're trying to seek wisdom for how do we live today? How do we live today? We have an election in just two weeks. Every election is always a, an important one, and this seems to be one of those, yes, a very important one. And some of the questions there are central to human flourishing. So tonight, we are blessed to have three outstanding panelists join us for this most important discussion. Their qualifications to be here are exceptional. Their collective knowledge of tonight's topic is really unmatched. And their real-life experiences in these issues is comprehensive. And by the way, I should let you know, ladies and gentlemen, that tonight is an all-immigrant panel. <laughs> that's very true. We, we talked about it before, right? It's an all-immigrant panel. Hey, that's a good thing, right? And if I can just indulge me for one moment, today I celebrate 42 years of being in this country. Immigrated here 42 years ago. Praise God for his goodness. But praise the Lord for Cornerstone, amen, that we can have a setting for this. Inclusive, many voices, many different opinions speaking about this issue. Now you can read the wonderful bios about each of our esteemed participants in your programs. For now, though, it is an honor to introduce you to them. First, recognize as one of America's most influential Hispanic faith leaders and advisor to three former U.S. presidents, please welcome the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Coalition, Pastor Samuel Rodriguez. Pastor Sam. Welcome, brother. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next, please give a warm West Michigan welcome to one of our country's foremost experts in education the founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, and a senior fellow at the very influential American Enterprise Institute, Mr. Ian Rowe. <laughs> Ian, pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And finally, let's welcome one of the world's leading sources and experts on interfaith dialogue. He's the founder and director of Yale's University Center for Faith and Culture. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Miroslav Wolf. Dr. Wolf. Thank you for being here, please. Well, gentlemen, thank you for being here. I thought we would start this evening with each of you sharing a five-minute reflection of your personal, spiritual, and professional journey, how the Lord's brought you to this point in your life and career, how flourishing has interacted with that, and so that our audience could have a sense of, of uh, your work and your journey to this point. So, Dr. Pastor Rodriguez, let's begin with you. Wow. Uh, I'm from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. My parents migrated from Puerto Rico, so I grew up in Bethlehem. And because it's Bethlehem, it gave me my messianic complex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, are there any questions? <laughs> uh, Steel Town, a blue collar. My dad was a Mack truck worker for 30 plus years, retired. Uh, I grew up in an evangelical home. Uh, I grew up as, uh, with a strong affinity for mathematics and science. And uh, I may preach like Kirk, but I think like Spock. So, uh, for all the Trekkies out there. But, so I grew up in an evangelical church, and I was doubtful about everything I saw and experienced. And I was, you know, I was forced to go, obligated to go to church because my mom gave me a choice. You either go to church or go to church. So I wanted to survive and flourish, and hence I said yes. Um, but with that being said, I encountered Christ at an early age, and I saw a continuum that gave us a recipe to confront our, even our current melees, meaning every single person on the planet right now is either failing, surviving, or flourishing. Every single human being can fall into one of these three respective categories. You're either failing, surviving, or, or flourishing. The Greek exegete of the term flourish would actually include the word thriving. And I made a choice early on through my relationship with Christ, looking at some of the lids that were in my community, and even from a multi-generational perspective as part of our familial legacy, how to confront them through faith, how to provide a continuum of faith and science that was uninterrupted, that would enable us to see the glory of the finished, vicarious, atoning work of Christ in my life exhibited to a broken world. And I'll conclude with this. I saw Billy Graham preach on Channel 39 in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. I was about 13, 14 years old. And I saw that Billy Graham message, and I went like, yeah, that right there. My parents are not preachers now. And I saw Dr. King on PBS. I have a dream, 1963 speech. And I went, yeah. And that became my life's mission. What if we can reconcile Billy Graham's message with Dr. King's march? What if we can be a church that can be both vertical and horizontal? Sanctification and service, righteousness and justice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, John 3.16 and Matthew 25. What if we can be a church that is both the New Jerusalem and Grand Rapids, Michigan? That's my life's mission. That's why I'm here today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wonderful. Dr. Wolf, please share with us. It's, it's a very hard act to follow you are, <laughs> Sam. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm a preacher's kid. My father was Pentecostal minister. And when I was about nine years of age, I swore to God that I will never do to my kids what my father did to me by being a Pentecostal minister. Because in school, <laughs> communist school, I had to stand up and say in front of whole class, uh, who I am and so forth, and then, then my father's name, what does your father do? Uh, my father is uh, a minister, and I was kind of suspicious. And then I had to spell where my father works, and we, this was Christ's Pentecostal Church. And when I came to Pentecostal, I was praying for God to open up the earth for in her cruel mercy to swallow me. Uh, and then I decided I'm never going to do that to my kids. Um, and I found a way back to Christ. No, Christ found his way back into my heart. Um, when I was about 16. And when I think about this, why did I make that choice? It was not because of the church. I'm writing a biography of my parents now. And one chapter is going to be entitled, The Church of the Weird. 
And as a kid, I experienced this church as a weirdos, a bunch of weirdos that my father and my mother were shepherding, which I came later to appreciate as a fundamentally important service that I did to these people, and I, I admire my parents. But I certainly didn't become a Christian because of the church. I became a Christian because of Christ. Because Christ said, leave your nets and follow me. Because Christ said, when somebody hits you on one cheek, turn the other. Because Christ said, if you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all of them. And part of my mission, part of my calling, is to articulate for today what it means to be follower of this Christ whom I was so eager to follow. But we are in a moment in this country, not just in this country, in the world, in Western Christianity as well, where I put it this way, Christ has become a moral stranger to us. And I don't mean culture simply outside. I mean also culture within the congregations themselves. Think about it. Everything that matters to us did not matter to Christ. Everything that matters, no, everything is too strong. Many things <laughs> that matter, let's put it this way, a little bit more modest, which is truer. Uh, many things that matter to us did not matter to Christ at all. Many things that matter to him do not matter to us at all. Now, if I ask you, if I ask myself, oh, I would say, yes, 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 it does matter. But then when I analyze how I spend the time, how we spend the time, how we spend the time as a culture, then I see that our ways and Christ's ways have parted. And you know, when I was a student of theology, there was a book that was published. And that book, title of that book, it was a small book, smallish book. Title of that book was Jesus, Yes, Church, No. That was in the 70s, early 70s. The idea was Jesus was an attractive figure. The church was, well, church of the weird, <laughs> right? Or church of the complacent or church of the compromise, whatever you want to call that, right? But Christ was a shining example. And yet, I cannot imagine in today's cultural moment that book being written with that title because we have lost appreciation of who Christ is in Christ's radicality. My calling is to return us, first myself, then the church, then the culture at large, in some alignment, to some alignment, with the beauty of Christ who says, leave everything behind and follow me. Of the beauty of Christ who will stoop and wash the feet of the disciples. Of the beauty of Christ who wants the greatest one to be the, the servant, which is to say, who crosses our striving for superiority. And so on, I can continue. But that's what motivates me, and that's what informs the theological work that I do. Ian, please share with us. Yes. <clears throat> well, first of all, it's quite an honor to be here, and uh, these are two uh, wonderful colleagues, 
I'm looking forward to our discussion and great stories. As you said, we're all immigrants. Uh, my parents came to this country from Jamaica, West Indies in search of the American dream. And they believed in the strength of their family. They believed in the strength of their faith. They were Seventh-day Adventists. And they believed in the strength of education. And they immersed uh, me and my brother in uh, what I can only call a life of flourishing. That they set the expectation for me that my purpose in coming here to this country with them was to replicate the idea of flourishing in the generations that would come after us. And so from a very early age, I was always interested in um, preaching the gospel in a way uh, through many means, uh, which has ultimately come to be running schools. I've worked in every kind of young person, rich kids, poor kids, uh, kids in foster care, uh, kids in homeless shelters, trying to understand how can we recreate a life of flourishing for kids who are coming from any kind of background. And what's always been interesting to me is I've seen children who come from very challenging situations. And as they make their decisions, as they enter young adulthood, they recreate those same challenges. They don't break that cycle. And yet, I've seen other young people with a different framework change their dynamic and enter young adulthood and a life of flourishing. And the question that's really animated my life has been, what makes the difference? What makes the difference for young people who have the ability to see a different future for themselves despite the conditions that they're in? And my experience is that those young people typically have what I call a sense of agency, where I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So if you think of agency like a vector or velocity, velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So the question is, if we all have free will, how is it that we know how to exercise our free will in a sense of right and wrong? And so the young people I've seen that have been able to change their destiny, change their trajectory, have usually made the kinds of decisions, and this is what my, all of my work is committed to, that family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship have been the pillars around which they've embraced their lives. It's not been about the family that they're from. It's been about the family that they form. They have typically formed strong families. They typically have had a strong faith commitment because too many young people are moral strangers to that aspect of our lives. And we can talk more about what that, is, what that means. They've often had access to a strong education through educational freedom. And lastly, they've had a sense of entrepreneurship, that a sense of adventure, a creation, problem solving in their life. And so my mission really is to revitalize these institutions, family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship in the lives of our children to know that they can lead radically different paths to whatever may have come before. Yeah, thank you. So I wanna, I wanna divide our conversation tonight into really three areas. 
One is, you, you've all touched on the individual agency and the individual watching Billy Graham and the, and the, the weird, the church and the weird, right? I want to speak about the individual and, and what it takes for an individual to flourish, how we understand the human person. I also want us, want us to engage context. The church, structures, but then I want to start to also for us to engage culture. And I want to start with culture first. There are a lot of cultural narratives about flourishing. Lots of different cultural understandings in the culture about what it takes for a person to flourish. And sometimes these cultural narratives are very much rooted in communities to which we belong. Whether it's an African-American community, a Hispanic community, an evangelical community, right? Whatever the community may be, each of these communities have competing claims about what it means to flourish. How do we wrestle with that today? In your mind, what are the narratives out there or the views of the human person advanced by these narratives that we should rethink with moral discernment that perhaps are not contributing to flourishing, that perhaps are giving us things that we may like but actually bring our demise, not our flourishing? How should we tackle that cultural narrative or those cultural narratives. Ian, please. So it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful and I think very timely question because in the world I live in, I, I run schools in the heart of the South Bronx um, where in the school that we just opened, only 7% of kids who start ninth grade four years later graduate from high school ready for college. You know, so for generations kids are growing up in environments where the narratives that they hear is that the system is rigged against you or that there are all these obstacles that are designed for your failure. And what I've observed is that there are really two dominant narratives. One I call blame the system and the other I call blame the victim. In the blame the system narrative, that's an ideology that views our country, that views America itself as an oppressive nation. That's simply based on your skin color, your race, your gender, some immutable characteristic, that you are a victim, that, that you are somehow behind the eight ball, that there is a white supremacist lurking on every corner, that capitalism itself is evil, and that these systems are so powerful, so rigged, so destructive that you as an individual are powerless to overcome them. Right? So that, that obviously is a narrative that robs young people of the type of agency that I described earlier. But on the other side, there's what I call blame the victim. In that narrative, it's not America that's the problem. America's the land of opportunity. No, no, you're the problem. You as an individual, you haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. You haven't taken advantage of all the opportunities that exist out there. Of course, the problem with that narrative is that it's really hard if you're eight years old to pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you're in a district where only 7% of kids are graduating from high school ready for college, or you're not part of a strong faith community, or, you, or you, if you've been uh, raised in a struggling family. So I have felt we have to have an empowering alternative for young people to recognize that they're not alone. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. So what are the core institutions, and I keep coming back to family, religion, 
education, entrepreneurship. We need a revitalization of those institutions so, so that more young people can recognize they are not alone. They are not alone. And too often, I think, in our society, there is this expectation that you've, in order to be successful, you've got to go out and just go do it. You know, the Horatio Alger story. And we forget the key institutions that can help all of our young people succeed. Thank you, Dr. Wolf or, or Pastor Rodriguez. Sure. Um, this is such a large question that we could discuss uh, and kind of uh, tease out uh, various aspects. And uh, uh, I think each of us will have a, a, a kind of certain slant on it. I just want to emphasize one thing that became uh, significant for me over the period of uh, maybe last uh, five years uh, or, or so. Uh, no, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, but nine. Um, and, and that's, uh, I was reflecting about the nature of, uh, of American higher education and how in American higher education, the question of meaning of life has gradually shifted to the margins so that generally our institutions of higher education do not grapple with that question uh, more generally. Uh, and then I was asking myself, why is that when this question of what is the life worth living? What is the meaning of our lives? Was at the very heart of higher education, uh, Harvard University, uh, other universities, Yale as well, uh, and throughout, all the way through, the, even, even uh, up to the uh, 60s. And then suddenly it fell, fell off. And um, one, could, one could see that universities became about how do I acquire means to achieve certain goals? That was the larger question of um, prevalence of thinking about what do I need to have to set the goals because I don't really know what the goal of my life is so that follow your dream and have all the resources available for you so that whatever your dream becomes next time, that's where you can go because you would have enough resources. That means that we, from the kindergarten on, through the, uh, through the uh, university education, started thinking about how do I acquire certain forms of capital? Monetary capital, educational capital, reputational uh, capital, all sorts of kind of capitals, which then I could employ in whatever ways I, I can. And suddenly, we knew how to get from point A to point B, because we learn business, we learn technology, we learn politics, and so forth. The only thing we didn't know is what point of B is worth reaching. So we have our desires, and we have means to acquire what we desire. You mentioned uh, that at the in introductory comments, but we just are not sure what it is that's worth wanting and why is it worth wanting? And that question depends on answering the question, what kind of human being is it worth being? Who are we as human beings? What should we strive for? You have a famous course at Stanford uh, on design your, uh, design your uh, life, right? Uh, I've talked to the authors of that, of that book. They spent three pages on asking the question, what are you designing your life for? And about 250, I'm not sure how big the book is, 300 maybe, on how do you design it? 
my question is, and our question is, I think Christian question is, I'll put it this way, is to what end do we live our lives? And then to line up the means that we need to have in order to lead those kinds of lives. I've started teaching courses at Yale that, that address just that kind of a question. And I think we need churches, we need institutions who would take up those questions. My last comment, I sometimes think that churches think in the means kind of way only and not in the ends kind of, uh, kind of way. Um, the Lord is then only a savior. The Lord is then only a comforter. The Lord is then only the one who blesses. But the Lord is not, well, the Lord. <laughs> uh, not the one who sets the agenda for our lives. Thank you. Pastor. Respectfully, the, and this is just Sam Rodriguez coming from, of course, my perspective, my worldview, but even the notion that culture has some sort of positive inclination or commitment for flourishing may be debatable. I would argue right now, culture, outside the context of our Christian biblical worldview, would have great angst and consternation regarding even the subject matter of flourishing. There is a perpetual survival modality the narratives embedded in culture right now do not speak to or even advance the notion of flourishing. I would argue it, it advances this idea of permanent dependency. Dependency on government, government replacing God. I have stated frequently, and I do believe it, that we have this obsession about Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam may be our uncle. He will never be our Heavenly Father. And don't forget, our uncles get drunk. And, and our uncles are kind of weird on occasion, right? But this uber-dependency on the state, the government, uh, the, the, the hierarchy, the bureaucracy, it's, it's for survival mode. I don't think any government has the intention of putting their citizenry in some sort of failure reality. But it's about survival so you can depend on us, hence we retain our power. The, the Christian message is so antithetical because... The message of Christ, John 10, 10, which could undergird to a great degree, the enemy came to rob, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus said, came to give you life and life abundantly. Again, in the Greek exegete, that abundant life description equates to flourishing in him. Now, I'm not referencing some sort of prosperity gospel embedded in the charismatic circle. I'm talking about flourishing, prospering in him. Abundant life, what does that look like? Through academia, through taking urban context and removing the lids, be it educational, social, economic, for families to have a multi-generational legacy of effectiveness, of flourishing, of prosperity. But in the Christian worldview, it begins with understanding that there are narratives out there that are counterintuitive to us experiencing abundant life. Perpetual victimization. We as a church are called to preach against this idea that we are perpetual victims. And all we're hearing continuously in culture is, you're a victim, I'm a victim. We speak more about the trauma than the testimony. And everyone is a victim. I can be a victim. I went to Starbucks, they didn't have almond milk. That's, that's victimization <laughs> right there. I mean, everyone's a victim. And we're creating a culture of, of and this is going to be coarse, you may want to edit this post facto, of just multi-generational whiners. 
And it's trauma, 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 trauma negating the testimony. Not that we don't have empathy regarding legitimate trauma. But there's this wonderful thing called redemption. Hence the problem with wokeism in the cancel culture. There's no element of redemption. We negate the vicarious atoning finished work of Christ. So the church has a strong responsibility. I think we, through the gospel, have this incredible message of a personal relationship with Jesus that brings about salvation, eternal life, new life, and abundant life. But while you are on this planet, what kind of life does God want you to live? Does he want you to suck your thumb in a fetal position and whine continuously? Or does he want you to exhibit the fullness of the glory of the risen Christ in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 3.18? The apostle Paul describes it. We in Christ become more and more like him through the working of the Holy Spirit that we go from glory to glory. And with that glory, we change the world around us. And we become the primary conduit of change. I leave you with a rubric that guides me every single day regarding exhibiting that flourishing reality embedded in Christ. One, today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. Today, I remind myself, Samuel Rodriguez, por favor, no te olvides de lo siguiente. I did not speak in tongues for the Pentecostal community. I just, I just want to say I was not speaking in tongues. Waiting for interpretation. And by the way, it was beautiful Spanish. By the way, all the charismatic is going. It was praise beautiful. Be the Lord. It's not that. It's not. Today, today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. Number two, we are what we tolerate. We are what we tolerate in our homes, in our families, in our generation, in Michigan, in America. In the 21st century, we are always tolerate. Number three, there is no such animal as comfortable Christianity. Number four, truth must never be sacrificed on the altar of political or cultural expediency. And number five, we must reconcile our eschatology with our missiology. This idea of it doesn't matter what happens to the world, we don't need to flourish. Jesus is coming, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. So who cares? We must push back on that. While we all believe that Jesus is coming down, while we wait for Jesus to come down, Jesus is waiting for his church to stand up. So we have to reconcile our eschatology with our missiology and flourish, and that's how we change the world. Thank you. So I want to speak about context. Because all of you have touched on the important role of institutions. There, is, there are many narratives who advance flourishing, but they're not. Dependency, victimization, so many. In a, a Christ-centered worldview, truly Christ-centered, Christ-rooted, really is the answer. It provides the, 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 the guide, the parameters, the foundations of flourishing, a flourishing life. I want to speak about context, though, uh, in, in institutions. Academia, K-12 education, the church. These are vital institutions, and we can speak about the family later on as well because it's vital to all of us, but there is a significant crisis in these institutions. In the church, you've already mentioned it already, Dr. Wolf. In academia and higher education, even in Christian higher education, but these institutions are vital. The church is vital. Universities are vital. K-12 education, Vital. So would you please address, we know the importance of the institutions, but what has to be transformed in these institutions for them to really advance 
a, a, a perspective, philosophy, curriculum about flourishing, which seems to me to be very much intertwined with the nature of the human person. Well, for me, <clears throat> the only way that I can answer that question after struggling with what the crisis is, particularly in K-12 education, was to run my own schools. We have to have the courage to build the institutions that stand for the principles that we believe in. So we've launched a school that's organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. Everything in our school, the curriculum, our rituals, our practices are tied back to these four cardinal virtues. Today, our team uh, eliminated our cell phone policy for our students. Originally, we allowed the students to be able to carry their cell phones, and that uh, didn't work. And so we've said, now when you come to school, you have to park your cell phone, and you'll get it at the end of the day. But it wasn't just a random thing. We said that this is organized around the virtue of temperance and self-regulation and self-control because you have to have the ability to not grab this device. And it seems like a simple example, but the more and more we operationalize what it means to have the habits and virtues of what flourishing means, this is what I often see as the disconnect we say wonderful words like flourishing, or agency, or self-determination, but we have a rising generation that doesn't know, actually know what those words actually mean or how you develop the tools, the habits of mind to adopt those practices. And so for me, running institutions has to become the vehicle through which we prove that our theories actually work. And the one thing that's, I think, positive around what has happened over the last few years, post-COVID um, closures, many, many families, particularly in K-12 education, saw that their schools were not acting necessarily in the best interests of their kids. They were pushing ideologies that were very opposed to a Christ-centered uh, way of life. And more and more families are homeschooling. They're taking their education into the lives of their, in, in, into their own hands. And I think that the more and more we create what we call educational freedom, where parents have the right to create the kind of context where they want their children to be educated, that for me is how we ultimately break through the oppressive narratives that have held so many of us back. Dr. Wolf, universities, near and dear to my heart, to your heart, and I've read about some of the courses you teach at Yale on this very important question about a life worth living. So share with us, if, if you had unlimited resources to build your own university, how would you do it? Oh, wow. This is, this is absolutely a, a challenging question, partly because uh, um, I don't consider myself to be really administrator, though I have a... Uh, I have this this great admiration for uh, for what folks who are designing the, the uh, and and running our great universities are uh, are, 
are doing. But I think one of the things, uh, and I can think of lots of things that I could I could do differently. But certainly one of the things that I would do differently is uh, w w there was a, um, as I indicated earlier, there was this major shift that, that happens in the humanities subjects. Those humanities subjects have become tried, started to emulate hard sciences. And obviously universities have to contain hard sciences element, social sciences element, humanities uh, element. I think theology belongs there too as a normative uh, discipline as well in the, in the Christian kind of uh, context. Uh, but humanities, given that in universities, uh, hard sciences uh, have a, a reputationally are on, on the top. And everybody kind of tries to emulate the, the scientific uh, rationality. As a consequence, what we have lost in humanities is ability to converse across century with voices from the past. So that you read Plato, Plato can be interested, uh, you can have antiquarian interest in Plato. What did Plato say and what did it mean then? What were the conditions under which he was saying what he was saying? That's a kind of interesting study in maybe exotic plants, but of relatively little relevance for us today. Whereas uh, in free, uh, earlier times, humanities were, among other things, also about this large conversation that happens across the centuries. And that was the conversation of what kind of life is worthy of our humanity. How do we construct, how do we see the world and ourselves in the world and live in that way? I've started in response to that. Um, I'm at uh, Yale University. It's a pluralistic university. I've started teaching then, uh, in response to this question, a course that is itself a pluralistic course. And the course is entitled Life Worth Living. And our question is, what kind of life is worthy of our humanity? What does it mean to lead life well, agency? What, what does it mean for life to go well for us? Circumstances that we need, uh, like every plant needs good soil, so human beings also need circumstances to survive. What does it mean, mean to feel right? What, how, uh, what motivations do I have to lead life in this way? Uh, what happens when I fail? And to whom I'm responsible? Those are our questions. We ask those questions of the great traditions, uh, religious and secular. And then have what I describe as truth-seeking conversation. Each of these philosophies and religions that we encounter, they make claim to be true. I say to my students, they can't all be true. <laughs> they can have maybe partially a little bit of truth, but they can't all be true because they contradict each other. But I wanted to take them seriously during two weeks that we are engaging this question with the tradition. And then wrestle with those claims with the best possible way so that you can understand and live from within that tradition. You can always reject that tomorrow, but you have to expose yourself so that you can begin to understand and wrestle with the truth that is there. Because what I find very often is kind of dismissal that we have. What we are not familiar with, we, we dismiss. Um, it's very interesting uh, what happens with the students. 
uh, we invite them also to to uh, to go into practices. For instance, uh, I've have, uh, and I I have done it once with my students. Okay, so to understand what Judaism is, you have to understand signature practice of Judaism. Signature practice of Judaism is keeping Sabbath. I'm going to keep Sabbath one day, one Sabbath. I invite all of you to do the same. And then we're going to meet together and discuss what kind of experiences we have had when we have parked our desire, parked our striving, and we have simply been there, celebrated uh, a day that is, that is free. Now, you can be Jewish, and this can be part of your tradition, but you can be a Christian, you can be a non-Christian, and you can suddenly discover what does it mean not just not to have a cell for the time that, for the time that you are in your school, but what does it mean to be completely free of any responsibility? And I'll end with this. I, I love that insight that I gained as I was, uh, as I was uh, doing this. Um, you know, uh, we live our lives striving and always strive for more. Striving creates malcontentment. That is to say, if I seek to achieve something more, it means that I'm not quite satisfied with what is. And there is a proper malcontentment, right? We should be striving. But what happens when we cannot be content? Not even for a moment. How can you have a flourishing life? How can you have joy or gratitude if there is, or gratitude mm -hmm. if there is no contentment? And Sabbath, I have come to believe, is the day of contentment. I love this story. Uh, you can see it in, in Joshua Heschel's book on, uh, on Sabbath, where a rabbi on the Sabbath day walked in the garden and he was thanking God for everything was created so wonderfully. And then he walks there and he sees his fence is broken. And then he says, immediately thinks, okay, I got called, called soon as Sabbath's over. I've got to call, so somebody has to come and repair this fence. And then he interrupts himself in the middle of it and said, what am I doing? I am working on this Sabbath. This fence, he concluded, is going to remain unrepaired the rest of my <laughs> life to remind me that Sabbath is the day of contentment. <laughs> it's a day of celebration of what is. Final comment on, on this. Um, in Dante's um, Divine Comedy, the beginning in Paradiso, there is, souls have different ranks, right? Different levels. At the beginning, he comes to, to the very, very beginning, very, and, and then there are these souls that are at the bottom. And there are these souls that are all the way up. And, and the question immediately is, well, how can you be satisfied in heaven when there are those who are better than you up there? And the response of the soul was absolutely splendid. We long for what we have. Learn how to long for what you have. That's Sabbath. Six days, you long to have what you long to have. But on the seventh day, long for what you have. All of our relationship to our children, to our work, to ourselves, our predicate depend for their beauty in this sense of, I long, I'm grateful, I rejoice in what I have and who I am. Pastor Sam, he, 
Dr. Wolf before said, Jesus, yes, church, no, that book. Today, the church finds itself in a difficult situation as well. Lot and lot and many a high number of young people are not attending church for various reasons. Many are recovering from church, so they will say, in your own ministry, tell us about the church, your church, by the institution of the church. What are the kinds of things that need to be done, rethought perhaps, in terms of the flourishing? I'm a super fan of the church. Self-serving, isn't that statement? Isn't that, wouldn't that be self-serving? But I am. Like, I truly believe that the Matthew 16, 18 principle, the gates of hell will not, shall not prevail against the church of Jesus. The most powerful institution, the only institution guaranteed to never fail. Google, Starbucks, Ford, IBM, Bitcoin, crypto, hmm. All of these things, the only one ever guaranteed is the church. The church. We have issues. The number one issue, the number one problem in America is not what you think. It's not moral relativism, cultural decadence. It is ecclesiastical lukewarmness. The number one issue is theological promiscuity. We are promiscuous theologically. The reason why Millennials, Generation Z, and Alpha are not attracted to the church. They may very well rewrite the second edition of Jesus, Yes, Church, No, because we have deviated from biblical orthodoxy, the centrality of Christ, biblical truth. It, we have become echo chambers of mutual affirmation. And to a great degree, and even in, in we pastor, God bless, a wonderful church, a thriving church, um, but even the megachurch culture to a great degree, the idea of influence being more important than integrity, that's scary. And that, that, that lack of viable, sustainable, biblically undergirded balance is the reason why, to a great degree, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And what we need to do is see a church that is committed to biblical orthodoxy, the centrality of Christ, biblical truth. We need to be a church that elevates Psalm 89:14. Righteousness, justice, truth, and love. Imagine a church that teaches righteousness, justice, truth, and love. A, a church that is, now this is going to be a little bit edgy, that is reflective of the current American demographical landscape. Meaning if you live in a, in a region where the, church, where the community is multi-ethnic, we need to do away with the idea of a permanent monochromatic depiction of the community. The church needs to be multi-ethnic, reflective of the community. We need to do away with the racial, ethnic, color, pigmentation, division, and discord. And we need to really look like the city and the community we're in. Now, if you're in North Dakota and everyone lacks a tan, then, then I respect that. You know, it is what it is. But if you live in anywhere where there's diversity in the community, it behooves us to make sure we're planting churches that look like the kingdom of heaven. We need to be careful in becoming political churches. And what I mean by that is I believe in prophetic activism rather than political advocacy. I believe every church should be committed to biblical truth and should espouse biblical truth. And I believe Christians should vote as an extension of our faith. Our vote should coincide with our biblical worldview. And we cannot create a dichotomy, a wall of separation. It should be a continuum. If you're pro-life on Sunday, for the, for, the, for the love of God, vote pro-life on Tuesday. There's a continuum there. Whatever it may be, there should be a continuum. With that being said, we shouldn't marry the donkey or the elephant. 
We should be married exclusively to the lamb. And we should be people of the lamb's agenda and do away with the notion of a Republican church and a Democrat church. You know, we are lamb's agenda people, a lamb who happens to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we can do this, but it requires great intentionality. And if we want to reach the emerging generations, we have to speak to issues that they are hungry for, which is truth, absolute, natural law. What are the moral absolutes that undergird civilization, not just Western society, but just collective civilization and humanity in order for us to flourish? I believe the church is the antidote. We are the answer, but we have to rise up and we have to look within ourselves and have a heart-to-heart, come-to-Jesus moment and say, for such a time as this, let's address these issues. I want, I want us to, to dive a little deeper in the context piece because you mentioned politics, the wonderful book, Lamb's Agenda. And there's a significant move in our society more and more. There's a counter push too, but a significant argument that somehow all of these problems of flourishing can be solved through better policies, through politics, through political institutions. A significant number even of evangelical Christians also believe that the government is the best means through which to address issues of poverty and education, so on and so forth. That's a significant opinion. Each of you in some ways are, are arguing some, something different. Not everyone has the luxury of starting their own school. Praise the Lord, you did. Or, or starting a brand new university. Some have done it in Texas just this year, as you know a brand new from scratch. Not everyone can plant a church. So how do we, students in this room, faculty, staff, individuals in the trenches, as it were, what, what, do, what do we need to do when you have these powerful movements of government and big institutions, political ones being the ones that oftentimes are seen as the saviors of the day? And especially when we can't always initiate what I'll call seismic changing kinds of institutions. What do we do? You know, I, to some degree, I, I'll confess, you know, running schools, I thought I can run great schools in the heart of the South Bronx, and I can be a government institution that transforms these issues. And I started running schools in 2010, and, and over the course of the decade, we had incredible success we had about 5,000 children on our wait list each year for only about 200 open seats, especially in the South Bronx. And we decided to move our headquarters uh, to the South Bronx because all of our future schools would be there. We would, we would solve many of the issues of poverty and all these things just by building great schools. And when we uh, moved our headquarters to the South Bronx, it was a, there was a needle exchange on the corner. Uh, there were drug addicts passing by our doors. But these are God's children. This is where we need to build great schools. We decided to do a walking tour of the neighborhood just to get to see where's the local bodega, where's the local deli, just so our staff could acclimate themselves. And we had this epiphany moment where as we walked on this walking tour, we saw about where the, that back wall is, a 27-foot baby blue Winnebago truck. And all of these adults were excited by this truck, almost like uh, kids when they see the ice cream truck. And as we got closer, we saw graffiti lettering, and the lettering said, who's your daddy? And it turned out, 
the Who's Your Daddy truck is a mobile DNA testing center where low-income folks were spending somewhere between $350 and $500 to answer questions like, could you be my sister? Are you my father? Profound questions about identity. It literally was in that moment, seeing the normalcy of this truck, that I recognized the limitations of policy or the limitations of even running great schools. Necessary, but not sufficient. I realized that we had to run schools that talk to young people about deeply spiritual matters, about deep questions about who you want to be, what is the family you want to form in your life, regardless of the family that you've come from. So I actually think it's very important, many of us, especially in the policy realm, recognize we can only go so far with policy. And it's much more about the key institutions, particularly the church, where we're building one-on-one -on -one relationships. We cannot transform our society from a top-down perspective. And that's what I've come to the conclusion that great schools policy, sure, things like school choice, if you advocate in your local community, run for school board, there still are policy levers that are important to unleash opportunities for the next generation. But frankly, I think it's much more about the culture that we build that is really uh, what we as individuals in our society have to come together to do. Yeah, I would, I would echo, echo much of that. Uh, I, I think uh, we as Christians for centuries have thought roughly that government can be an extended arm of the church, that we can kind of uh, implement Christian morality in American experiment. It was so that America can be a shining city uh, on the hill. And that temptation, which did not occur uh, uh, with, with the Puritans uh, first, which was there for centuries, um, I think comes from the marriage of uh, politics and of, uh, of church that is at odds with the fundamental message uh, of Jesus. I know that in this moment, many are tempted, uh, whether that's in Catholic circles with integralism, uh, whether that's in Protestant circles with dominionism, uh, to think that uh, we can have a large political solution to the cultural issues that we are facing, uh, facing today. I think that that is, that is a, both a mistake in terms of achieving those goals, but in some ways, for me, much more fundamentally, it is going to result in a great disaffection of people, of young people in particular, from the message of the gospel and from, from the churches. Very often the question is asked, and I'll, uh, I, I'll make a conjecture. The question is often asked, why is it that in America for many, many years, Christianity was relatively vibrant, whereas in Europe it was secularizing and, uh, and disappearing. And one of the explanations, which I find myself plausible, is that in Europe, church and state 
were intimately tied uh, together and the travails of the state were travails of the church and uh, uh, vice, vice versa. And then uh, church was connected with power, power that corrupts power that is uh, often a very difficult uh, concept and result was a kind of disaffection. From the, from the church. Uh, I think if we move in that direction in this country and ma marry the two, closer the two come together, the worse it's going to be for the generations, uh, uh, for the generations to come and the message of the gospel will be hindered rather than be able to serve as a ferment of cultural transformation. So in that sense, uh, my sense would be uh, we need to emphasize revitalize churches communities we need to we need to start from bottom up and I would uh, say uh, maybe that might uh, seem strange for, for somebody coming from the liberal institution progressive institution like like Yale uh, we've got to start with our own hearts I've learned that from my mother my mother was my first theological teacher. She was a devout woman who prayed every single morning from eight to nine, uh, and nobody uh, ought to have uh, uh, disturbed her in that hour. That was holy hour for her. It was holy hour for all of us. And my mother would often talk to me about faith. And he said, she said to me, I remember very, very vividly, Miroslav, the most important decision in this world are not taking place in the capitals not in Moscow, not in Washington. The most important decisions are being made, and then she has this characteristic gesture, they're being made right here. And he would rest her, uh, her uh, finger on her, her chest to make that point. And I think that is exactly right. We need support of larger groups of, of people, from friendships, churches, to, to cultural uh, settings in order to be able to, to thrive. But, but I think we need to rediscover the beauty and the challenge of the interior life and have this fundamental, unshakable commitment to the values uh, which are the foundation of life, the foundation of the world. Who is God? God is love. What created this world? Expression of God's love. What is the world? World is a gift to us. Why did God create the world? So that it would become home for God and for all people that God has created. Now, that is an interior, that is a, that is a story, a Christian story, true story, I think. But it's also something that happens within the soul of each one of us. You can't have a home unless you feel at home. And you can't feel at home until home kind of becomes your own thing. You can't be at home if there is a violence in, in your home. Therefore, you have to have stability, social stability. You can't be at home if materially it's not in some ways, home-like uh, around you. So you have to take care of that as well. But in, essential to home and driver of everything is the sense of my belonging to myself and being there at home, translated in our, uh, in our language. It means soul as a home of God who is making the world in God's home, into God's home. There, there is a fine line between the prophetic and the pathetic. 
theory. What, 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 was, what was it that I said right no, now? No, not you. <laughs> not you, my friend. You, you, are, you some, are prophetic. Something true. No, I'm leaving. You are prophetic. I love you, my friend. You are prophetic. Well, we, live, we live in pathetic times to a great degree. The darkness is just the, the exacerbated darkness. And not to differ, I think we would be on the same sort of meta plane here. I don't want the church the idea of establishing a theocracy, you're going to have to wait for that. You know, this is not that. If you really want utopia, stick around with your eschatology and see what happens at the end of the day. Uh, but we do have a role. From Genesis to Revelation, there were prophetic voices in very pathetic times. And these prophetic voices would address issues of public policy and government and governance and I do believe the church, I don't want the church to somehow engage in some sort of self-preservation model where all we do is in, you know, engage in that 1970s, 80s, how Lindsay escapism mindset. At the same time, the idea of dominionism where you know, we're gonna establish the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, in every sphere of influence perfectly. And when we rule, then Jesus will come. Both of them are out of alignment with biblical truth. What we do need to do is Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You, you are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. It is our job not to ask God to shine the light. It is our job to be the light. Be the light. John chapter 1, verse 5. Light always overcomes darkness. Our assignment right now in this pathetic age is to be the light. Hence, it's the church, it's the academy, it's the institutions, it's families producing cultural reformers and societal architects that shine the light in every sphere of influence, not for the sake of establishing a theocracy, but for the sake of advancing the gospel of Jesus. What worries me is religious liberty. If we don't get involved to a great, I've had, the, by the grace of God, the privilege of advising three different presidents. President Bush, President Obama for eight years, and, and President Trump. And I didn't have to vote for them to advise them. I did not. I remember uh, when, I was, uh, when President Obama, when the marriage decision came down from the Supreme Court, the number one artifact I have from my grandkids is from the Obama White House commending me on how immediately when the decision came down, I wrote an op-ed piece that either came out of the Wall Street Journal or Fox, one of the two. And it was a strong repudiation of the Obama administration's advancement of the narrative of that went counter to our biblical worldview. But I did it in such a nuanced and whimsical and loving way that the letter I got from the White House is, Pastor Sam, thank you for being so vehemently opposed to what we are doing. <laughs> but you did it in such a loving way that it truly reflects what we believe is correct Christianity. We can do this. But again, it's about turning on the light in the midst of darkness. And there are issues of religious liberty that are at stake. I think every Christian should be involved. I think Christians should run for political office, but not for the purpose of establishing a theocracy, but for once again, occupying space to turn on the light and repudiate darkness. Listen, folks, I'm the only one here from California. I come from Cuckoo for Cocoa. I mean, I, I literally live in Cuckoo for Cocoa Puff land. 
So this is not Yale, it's not Connecticut, and it's not the, even the Bronx. I'm in California. <laughs> and, and because the church in California is to a great degree complacent or quiet, it's the reason why there are some laws that are, you're going like, are you kidding me? It's a comedy sketch, but it isn't. It's the real world. So it's a healthy balance. It's, and that's, I think, that, that center of the cross where the optics of redemption meet the metrics of reconciliation, where the fishers meet the bread, that's, that's the strongest part of the cross. That's where we should reside and operate from. Just a footnote uh, on this. My, my saying for what you have summarized, uh, stated so, so well and so persuasively is political engagement, but not political religion. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So, so and it's, uh, it's that distinction that has Agreed. to be uh, uh, kept, otherwise you kind of lose the yeah, distinction between the realms. And, and what seems to be happening is that the, the religious persuasion is actually not religious. For a lot of the young people, especially on college campuses, sort of woke ideology has almost become a religion. It has replaced it, the spiritual center. And when I visit college campuses, it's amazing how uh, the lack of, you called, I think, moral, a moral stranger. That is what's happening, but that void is being filled by ideologies, uh, particularly progressive left. I mean, there's a, you know, talk, we'll talk about family. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who many of you may know is a writer or lead author for something called the New York Times 1619 Project, whose entire ideology is a victimhood narrative. And she says, for example, uh, if, uh, as relates to the racial wealth gap in our country, she says to black people, it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you save, none of these things can make up for 400 years of racialized plundering, in her view. It robs, and there's of course no mention of the power of faith or any, and, and by the way, in her own life, she has done all of these things to be successful and lead a flourishing life. And so the danger, the one danger we face from a church perspective, we have to have the courage to face that narrative where we've got institutions like the New York Times and the entertainment industry who are pushing in an anti a narrative which is very anti-religious and putting us in, in all sorts of racist and other categories. And what I find often in the church is that we're not exercising our moral authority to combat some of these narratives. So while we don't want to establish a theocracy, I agree, I think there are too many missed opportunities where the voice of the church could be so powerful against the narratives that are really diminishing our own children's sense of agency. I want, I want to ask yeah. you all to, to comment on the virtues we need, the kind of virtue we need, the kind of character strengths we need to advance winsomely a biblical worldview of flourishing. In, your, in all of your writings, you speak about moral courage of some kind. So I, wanna, I want to ask each of you to comment on what are those virtues, those character strengths? How do we cultivate those in our areas and spheres of influence? Because it seems to me that those are 
tremendously important to shine the light. To be the light. To be the light, to be influential. We have to have these virtues. And one more, if you could comment on how do we educate, engage those around us to learn to love what is good, to desire what is good, to desire real flourishing. You know, we, we become what we desire, right? That which we love, we become. So how do we, how do we educate toward that kind of love, that kind of discernment, those kind of character virtues? I think for myself uh, that there are these uh, hard and important virtues. Uh, you mentioned truthfulness, uh, love, um, justice, righteousness, and combination of those those two. And I think those are those are courage. Uh, th- those seem to me uh, really really fundamental. But but let's assume that we agree on those. Uh, my question is then, how is in what mode should I be truthful? You talked about uh, op-ed that you uh, wrote, which was written winsomely, right? Uh, there's a certain humility that's necessary uh, uh, also. Uh, it seems to me it's a, certainly a virtue, a Christian virtue, in terms of what I can and how I can understand myself, how I can walk in the, uh, in the world. Um, you know, it, it, it's a feature of, uh, I come from a very small country, uh, and when I encounter big countries, uh, you know, and live in big countries, I kind of live in a different, different world, uh, and reason why I feel like I live in a different world is that big countries walk like John Wayne through the, through the um, middle of the street in town. I'm the big shot. I, I walk, I don't care about what who little, little uh, folks are. Uh, you know, I have a, this is my street, and whoever is in my way, I mean, they'll, they'll find their way out of my way. Otherwise, I'll take them out of uh, my way. But, but there's a kind of way of being in the world that is just, just such. And it's, it strikes me, and it seems to me, that this fundamentally at odds with the character of, uh, of, of the gospel. Uh, so... Um, uh, a, a kind of sense that I can have, an, uh, for instance, an empathy. You mentioned also in our private conversation, which I thought was really, really significant. Can I think myself into the shoes of that person? Can I, be, can I inhabit that world? It is so easy to um, dismiss others, to demonize others. But how do I manage even the one who is seemingly my enemy, the one who is opposed to me, how can I step into their shoes as well? How can I see the world from their perspective? How can I see that I have a life in the imagination of other people and take account of that life that I lead in imagination of other people? I think if we lack that ability, we will not be able to live together. I mean, we talked also during the break that the polarities in this country are absolutely staggering. I mean, I have been described, and I like to think of myself as a theologian of the bridge. But the 
what are called those things at the at the end of the abutments, the the end, the 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 pillars at the end from the from from two two sides. What are they in English? What the bridge is uh, leaning into from each side. Well, they are so far, the and there's nothing there's nothing in the middle, right? And it's very hard to function as as a bridge. What I would really want the church to become is a site of reconciliation, sight of being able to inhabit the world of others while not betraying one's own uh, conviction. And I think the healing for our nation, healing for our, and by the way, it's not our nation. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, we, we live in the age globally of hardened identities. And our world suffers tremendously right now globally under the pressure of hardened identities. For God's sake, what we shouldn't do is harden even more those identities. We need to find ways in which we can see each other from perspective with the eyes of the other and try to um, walk together, notwithstanding the profound differences that we might have. Otherwise, we're gonna have little Ukraines happening. We're gonna have other events of this sort happening. Last comment I will make. You know, uh, 25 years ago, I wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And it was a conflict around hard national ethnic identities. Um, people in Europe at that time, Europe was uniting, and people in Europe were saying, what are you barbarians there in the Balkans doing? You're at each other's throats while we are all uniting. We, the civilized Europeans, we are uniting, and you barbarian uh, Balkanists, uh, you, you, are, you are dividing, you're hardening your, your identities. We live now in the world that is worse in terms of hardening of identities than it was in the Balkan uh, war at the time of the war in former, former Yugoslavia. And uh, I think we need to find a Christian way beyond hardening of identity. And that means grace, and that means emphasizing we are all God's creatures. And I, above all, ought to love my enemies. Mr. Sam. Integrity. You're asking about the virtues that will enable us to advance the agenda of human flourishing in the name of Jesus, integrity. When your integrity is greater than your influence, nothing can stop you. Integrity is everything. It's authenticity, it's being transparent. There are generations emerging looking for the real, not for the fake, not for the filter, but authenticity and transparency, integrity. Say what you mean, mean what you say, live it out. Don't just preach it. It's not your public image. It's not your posting on Instagram. It's who you are. It's who you are behind the scenes. Integrity is everything. Civility. The fact that the church, as Christians, we can occupy the public sphere with the voice of civility. We should be the primary conduit for reconciliation. We should be. But on many occasions, unfortunately, we have fallen short. And we exacerbate the great divide by being so vociferous and so emotionally driven by the hype and the energy of the moment, even by righteous indignation that becomes carnal oppression because we permit that to morph into something that's not in alignment with the heart of God. So it's integrity, it's civility, and 
It's this commitment of making those that follow us greater than ourselves. It's humility. Knowing that it's all by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15.10. It's all for his glory, 1 Corinthians 10.31. It's all in his name, Colossians 3.17. It's all about him. It really is. And that's humility is the wineskin that manages the favor of God. And if we do things with integrity and civility and humility, we, we can literally change the world. Ian. And you know, speaking of the virtues, again, we've organized our entire school around courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom, with courage being the first, and we believe the most important, because it's courage that must be evoked when all of the other virtues are under attack. And the thing that we think about a lot is how do we cultivate this virtue? How do you teach? And one of the things that we're doing is how do we connect our kids' stories today to people generations ago that faced a whole set of different challenges? So, for example, Booker T. Washington, you know, 100 plus years ago during Jim Crow uh, segregation, where the education for black children, particularly in the South, was horrific. And he said, this is not a vision that I want to preserve. I want to build a network, and he built nearly 5,000 schools throughout the South with Julius Rosenwald, they're considered the Rosenwald schools, of exceptional schools for black children. He was not satisfied with what he faced. And we tell these stories to our kids. And he, when he founded Tuskegee University, he started a series of lectures every Sunday night, short lectures, five to 10 minutes, about courage, integrity, how do you build these characteristics, even during this era of segregation and Jim Crow devastation to the black community? We've gotten those lectures, and now we are doing sessions with our students every month where we recite those lectures verbatim. The words don't have to change. And so we say to our students, if he could recite these things then under the conditions in which he faced, what, is, what will it take for us to surpass the conditions that you face? And we found the more that we tell those kinds of stories across generations, we can start to cultivate the kind of courage that I think our kids need today. We're almost out of time, so I want to ask a, a question for us to engage, which is the role of the family. A central institution in your book, you made a wonderful, wonderful case for the importance of the family and how often it's being neglected in today's conversations about flourishing. We focus on race, ethnicity, other demographics, uh, LGBTQ issues, freedom, freedom, unhampered freedom at times as views of flourishing, and yet family, from a sociological standpoint, has been demonstrated to be one of the strongest and most important institutions for flourishing. And yet, even within the church, families are struggling in significant ways. So in your experience, your research in terms of flourishing in the church, outside of the church, share with us your thoughts on the family now, what we need to do as families in a very personal way, and what we need to do in the context and culture in which we live to protect families. Well, virtually every social pathology that we are concerned with, crime, 
poor education, poor health outcomes, uh, mass incarceration rates, if you reverse integrate back to a lot of the issues that were the spring well for why these things are happening, often, often you see a deep correlation, if not causation, to lack of strong families, particularly single parent homes. And that, that what I spoke about earlier with the who's your daddy truck, the non-marital birth rate in that section of the Bronx, Bronx was 85%. And when I started doing this research in Chicago and parts of Los Angeles and Appalachia, you see, particularly amongst women 24 and under, you know, the, in 2020, the non-marital birth rate for women 24 and under in the black community was 91%. 71% across all races. So it's 61% in the white community. It's what I call the equal opportunity tsunami. And yet, how often are we talking about family and the importance of family structure as the central most important uh, factor that's driving a host of these outcomes. You, many of you may have um, seen the data that was just released uh, in the nation's report card, the National Assessment for Educational Progress. Huge uh, declines in academic outcomes in almost every state, and you're seeing what about the racial achievement gap, all, all these other things. It turns out, and I'm hoping to publish this soon, Based on looking at the data, kids living with their married mother and father are doing at least twice as well, at least twice, of every other uh, uh, potential family structure. But where are you seeing that as the actual lever that has the greatest potential, in addition to faith, to transform outcomes for young people? So I'm on a mission at our schools we are committed to this idea of teaching our students about strong family formation. There's something called the success sequence that I write about in my book. If you finish just your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind, just you learn the dignity and discipline of work, and then if you have children, if you get married first, 97% of people who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. It's not a guarantee. But this is information young people need to know. And there are many people who actually oppose the teaching of this content. You can't teach that. These kids are coming from broken families, so let's not teach this kind of content because somehow you'll shame them for growing up in families that haven't followed this success sequence. Those are the gatekeepers who have appointed themselves to be acting in the interests of these communities when, in fact, they're depriving our very young people, the very information that's so crucial, particularly around family formation. For me, it's, the, it's one of the central reasons I'm running schools for young people to understand this element, the family that they form, not the family that they're from, will be the single greatest decision that they make in their lives. Yeah, um, I want to make just uh, just a, uh, almost uh, two two little additions, <laughs> not so much to to take anything uh, anything away. Uh, one is uh, the studies that I've read, especially about immigrant families. All of us are uh, immigrant, uh, and what happens in the second generation after immigrant family? There, there is a and the reason for it because there is a there is a significant downturn that happens in the second generation. Uh, and 
whereas you had in, uh, in, in, the, in the settings from which they came, they have aunts and uncles, uh, and wider network of very thick relationship that uh, when parents could not catch a person, uh, a child, aunt dead, or, uh, and, and so, so it was seen as we belong in this thick network of relationship together, we're gonna take care of, uh, of one another. And that kind of relieves the pressure on the, on the single, uh, on the single uh, family, which I know many of us experience those pressures, have difficulties uh, in, in relationships. The other side uh, of things, and I can't uh, help but thinking about it uh, very frequently. I mean, Jesus was single. I mean, Apostle Paul was single. I mean, the, the, the call was away from the, uh, of the family. There was something also that is fundamentally uh, about a kind of sense of more ultimate devotion than the, than the family. It's not that somehow God is subservient to, to family. To the contrary, you might have to sacrifice family for the sake of devotion to God. I think that is so central to the message of Jesus. I'm not sure that it takes away anything on, of the importance of the thick relationship. That was the point earlier that I made. But, but it's, it's a very important to, to keep in mind and therefore not to overburden those who chose to choose this kind of way because for whatever reason they might not be able to live otherwise. Pastor Sam. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Joshua's declaration, you fast forward to Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your family, you and your household will be saved. Uh, 23 generations deep, Isaac digs up the well that his father dug up that was clogged up by the enemies. Or in California, we would call them the mucho malo hombres. They would dig up the well. 23 generations deep. 23 generations deep. There is a multi-generational family promise embedded in scripture if we get things right if we pursue righteousness in the New Testament, if we live in the finished work of Christ. So there's a commitment for the family. We, we need to re-strengthen. Churches need to become family-oriented. Right now, we're more about production and content, even sermonettes, what we present. And we need to be focused more on the next generation and families. How do we strengthen families? How do we deal with mental health issues? How do we deal with anxiety and fear and depression and abuse? How do we deal with pornography addiction in the church? How do we deal with so many issues that are confronting families today, even post-COVID? How do we do that? So the really, it requires the church to really step up. We need to go beyond Sunday's Kumbaya service and become an integral force in transforming and building a firewall for families to be more viable. Last thing, the Apostle Paul's writings, to a great degree, God conquers, we possess, our children inherit. God conquers, we possess, our children inherit. Our children will ever will inherit whatever we provide, be it the trauma or the testimony, the pain or the praise. So we gotta get this right, but we can do it. Strengthen the families, the church a primary conduit. We've reached the end. I wanna ask each of you to give a 30 second to one minute wisdom advice to our audience, especially to the students who are here. Cornerstone University students, some high school, some middle school, uh, high, uh, school students, what would you say to them as they think about the future, they see all that's happening around them about God, the Bible, and human flourishing? Pastor Sam. 
Yeah, listen, simply stated, we're living in the last days, and there is a long, very exhaustive list in Timothy, Matthew 25, even Romans chapter 1. We're living in the last days. We are. In the last days, people will become lovers of themselves. We call that Instagram. Um, um, it, it, in the last days, men and women will leave their natural desires. We call that California. So... But there is a great last day promise, I kid you not. It's so, pro it's so promising that it's embedded both in the Old Testament and New, Joel 2.28, Acts 2.17. In the last days, God says this, not I might, not I may, not I'm inclined to, not I hope to, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So get ready. We're about to see God's glory show up like we've never seen before. <laughs> Amen. Dr. Holmes. I long for what would Jesus do days. Uh, you didn't hear it from theologian, right? We were always critical of that. What would Jesus do? That's too simple. Uh, you don't live in Jesus' time. But it contains a profound truth. Jesus of the gospel is the key to our humanity. And what Jesus would do today is the most important question we can ask of ourselves and on the answer to that question and the blessing of the Spirit of God upon all flesh uh, depends where we as individuals, where we as churches, where we as culture are going to be. Thank you. Amen. And I, th I think uh, the message I would say to students here, to the same students that are in our own classrooms, courage. We are living at a time where there are ideas, narratives, men can get pregnant, the family doesn't matter. These ideologies are corrosive and dangerous, and yet many of us, when we hear these things, are silent and fearful. Don't let that happen. Courage is what we need as individuals, courage is what we need as a society. Courage is what we need in our church to combat these narratives that are harming our children. Courage, courage, courage. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please join me in thanking these wonderful panelists? Thank you, thank you. And before we dismiss, I would like to have our chair of the board, Carol Boss, come and close us in prayer. Thank you, Carol. Was this great? Would you like more of it? Next April, more of it. So please come back. I have to say, tonight's conversation, thank you so much, all three of you, all four of you. Fantastically well done. You actually brought me back to my university days decades ago where I learned, and I'd like to ask if you agree, that virtues are learned habits of choice. Do you agree? So do we all agree that if virtues are learned habits of choice, there's hope for all of us? Praise the Lord for hope. We don't give up. We live in a polarized country, 
but we can overcome, and we will. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for these conversations. So important. More important than we realize until we sit here and listen and know how important these topics are for us, for our country, for our world. Father, you have been here. Jesus, you have been here. Holy Spirit, you have been here. Help us to leave and not forget what we have heard, what we have learned, and what we can do. And we can have virtues as our learned habits of choice. Courage, humility, love, and belief in you because you are all and in all and for all. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. You are dismissed. Thank you. Ian, thank you.